First Peter chapter two, verse four. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now... You are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. His missionary exploits on the dark continent were legendary. Famous as a national hero of Great Britain in the late 1800s. But after his final departure for Africa, months turned into years with no word. And so in 1869, a journalist by the name of Henry Morton Stanley was sent with a crew of 200 men on an expedition to find this missionary. November 10th, 1871, the crew arrived at the village of Ujiji on the banks of Lake Tanganyika in the African interior. Stanley was led by some of the natives there to a hut from which emerged a weary, wizened, white-bearded old man. And Stanley had found him. Stanley was, was thrilled. In fact, he later wrote in his memoirs that he wanted to rush up and throw his arms around him. However, Stanley was an Englishman. And the good doctor was a Scot. So he opted to reach out his hand and speak four words that would become the stuff of legend. Dr. Livingstone, I presume. (laughs) Dr. Livingstone, I presume. It morphed into a quizzical phrase that would be used. Whoever knows when these phrases are going to hit and meet popular culture. But this one did. Long after Livingstone and Stanley were distant memories, Dr. Livingstone, I presume became a a witticism for understatement. Something you would say, especially after a long journey, perhaps you would journey across country to see relatives and they'd open the door and you'd say, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. (laughs) Or after an arduous task, something very difficult, you finally come to the end of it, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Well, Dr. David Livingstone ultimately died of complications from malaria in 1873 at the age of just 60. I can say that now, just 60. (laughs) But I can imagine his welcome home by Jesus at the gates of heaven, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. (laughs) 
This morning we're going to talk about living stones. And what it means to be living stones. And Peter is the right man to do it. You might call Peter the living pebble. Because you recall his name, his birth name was Shimon, Simon, Sandy. But Jesus nicknamed him Petros, little rock, little pebble. Matthew 16, 18, you are Petros. And upon this Petra, this this rock, this bedrock, I will build my church. Note that Jesus didn't build the church on a pebble. He built the church on a rock. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it, Jesus said. So Peter's the right pebble to talk about living stones. He's the right one to bring this message. But he uses in these verses before us what what commentarian Wayne Grudem termed as a daring metaphor. And it really is, if you haven't thought about this before, living stones. Living stones. Well, stones aren't living. In fact, if you look up at the matter uh, that stones are made of, it's two things. Mineral, or different minerals, quartz or or feldspars or, or mica. Minerals and then dead organic material. That's what you get with stones. Stones don't live. Which made Jesus' statement all the more odd. He came riding that donkey's foal across the Cadron and up into Jerusalem. His disciples, the followers, and people in the crowd who were caught up in the moment seeing what was taking place and seeing this one fulfilling prophecy, riding into Jerusalem on the donkey's foal, were shouting out, Hosanna! Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord! So excited! So ready for this moment! But the Pharisees were not. Their hearts were stone cold. And they were telling Jesus to rebuke His disciples. And Jesus said, Luke 19.40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Stones don't cry out. Of course, our, our brother Clark Donald gave a teaching a while back where he pointed out that scientifically we now prove that so, stones do have their own sound. They do give off a sound wave, which is marvelous. So the stones apparently are crying out even though we may not hear them. Because all creation was created to worship God. But perhaps if you are silent, if these are silent, Jesus said the stones will cry out. And then Jesus would go on to apply the stone imagery to Himself. Referring to Himself as such. He quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. He does this within just a few days of the stones cry out comment. Luke chapter 20, verse 17. He said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone, or literally the head of the corner. The stone rejected. You know what the wonder is of the chief cornerstone? is He makes dead stones live. That's what Jesus does. He gives life to dying and dead things. He brings life even to the stones themselves. Living stones. That's what Peter calls us. Living stones that are now being built up into this spiritual house. And this amazing teaching before us describes the process. Explains to us what really is going on. So I want to take it this morning in four parts. Let's let's pick it apart and understand what it is the Spirit is saying to the church today. Four parts. I'll get into you right up front. We'll start with the base. The base. Then we'll talk about the bayit. 
B-A-Y-I-T, the Bayit, which in Hebrew means temple. The Bayit, but I wanted a B word. So the base, the Bayit. Number three, the blueprints. The blueprints. And finally, number four, the building blocks. As we consider living stones built into a house, a spiritual house. Again, the base, the Bayit, the blueprints, And finally, the building blocks. Number one, the base. Look at verse 4. And coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus is the living stone. He is the, the base, the foundation, the cornerstone. As I said, literally the head of the corner is what that phrase means. The most important stone of the building. The stone that had to be correct. Had to be laid in the right place. Had to be solid and sure. And of course, Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, people try to lay all kinds of foundations. They'll try to lay the foundation of education. Or, or perhaps the foundation of relationship with other people. They'll try to lay the foundation of financial security. There are many foundations people think, if I lay this, if I do this right, my house will stand. But the truth is, and Scripture shows us this, all other foundations are shifting sand. There is only one foundation. One that is rock solid. One that is true. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, in ancient times, they didn't do what we do today. They didn't pour concrete footings and cement slabs. That's what my house is built on, all of our homes. I remember when the slab was was poured for my house. I remember walking out on it and and hoping this thing was going to last. Because I knew everything built on top of it depended on it lasting. And and Niccolo, it's still standing, so well done. We don't, they didn't do it that way. They brought in the cornerstone and built stone by stone by stone off of the cornerstone. The cornerstone of the Jerusalem temple is believed to have been found. And that cornerstone, listen to this, was 39 feet 4 inches long. 7 feet 10 inches wide and 43 inches tall, weighing, get this, 80 tons. Huge, massive, solid stone. Not the biggest stone, by the way, there at the temple complex. If you go down into the rabbi's tunnel, which literally goes underground today, based on today's ground level, underground and alongside what was the retaining wall for Herod's temple, there are stones there that are so big, so massive, they weigh up to 600 tons. I have no idea how they did it. Engineers today look at the building of the retaining wall alone for the Temple Mount and say, how did they move it? They think it was by pulleys. They've come up with all kinds of things, but none of us were there to see 2,000 years ago. But it's an absolutely remarkable feat of architecture. But the cornerstone was vital. It wasn't just big. As I said, it wasn't necessarily even the largest stone, but it braced the entire building. It also provided symmetry for the structure. So holding up the structure, yes, but all the angles, all the alignments were based on the base. If the base was off, 
you'd have a problem. Or if you were misaligned in the building, in the construction to the base, you had a problem. You ever go to hang blinds in your windows and realize that you're 71 inches wide at the top and 73 and a half at the bottom? Talk to your builder. Now I can tell you, all of our windows are very well aligned. Again, well done, Niccolo. But back in ancient times, if you were off from the cornerstone, the whole building ended up, well, you get the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Rather than the temple of God. So the cornerstone was vital. And Jesus is that cornerstone. And I point this out just to say, yes, He's solid. Yes, He is sure. But hey, if the other stones are not properly aligned to the cornerstone, the building's going to be off. If we are misaligned to Jesus, we're going to be unstable. If, if we're off still in the quarry, if we're to the edge of the building, if we're leaning out, if we're not really fully engaged and fully tied in to the rest of the framework of this building, we're going to have problems. Jesus is the cornerstone. How's your alignment? And how do you remain aligned or, or get aligned with the cornerstone? Uh, I would say by His Word. Doing what you're doing right now. Being in His Word, studying His Word, listening to His Word, pouring over His Word, asking His Spirit for the inspiration of His Word, which maintains the alignment. By the way, you know when you're misaligned. I know when I'm misaligned. Well, how do we know? Things don't work. Stuff gets confusing. Faith starts to wobble. Hope seems to evaporate. Love is something I don't have time for. When I'm misaligned from the cornerstone. The stone, the living stone, which is Jesus. Again, how's your alignment? Listen to what Peter says in verse 4, the first four words, and coming to Him. Coming to Him. Coming to Him. How's your alignment? If it's off, come to Him. The word in the Greek there is proserkomai, and it means to approach or to draw near. Now, this is the first of many very Hebrew things that, that Peter is saying here. In fact, the Hebrew imagery in this section is huge. And we're going to see all of that. But Peter is encouraging followers of Messiah, both Jew and Gentile alike, to become, to be the new people of God. The new people. A, a new breed of people, if you will. As he says down below, a chosen race. This is a different thing than anything that had ever happened in 4,000 years of earth history before the coming of Christ. Now, a new people. By the way, not a people replacing Israel. And I always feel like I need to clarify that. That the church doesn't replace Israel, but, but the church does come along and possess and share in all the blessings and promises of the Older Testament. We don't steal the promises from Israel, but we become grafted into those promises. We share in the promises. We get to be a part. That still just amazes me. Coming to Him. Coming to Him is a very Hebrew word, a very Hebrew phrase. I gave you the Greek word, but it, it comes straight out of the Hebrew Scriptures. And in fact, this word in the Greek is used a number of times in the Septuagint. Every time I say the Septuagint, I always explain. Because I want to make sure you know what I'm talking about. It's one of those weird words we don't use every day. But the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. 
It was written 280, 285 years B.C., before Jesus. The Septuagint is vital to understand because that's the Bible they used in the first century. Most of the New Testament letters, when you see quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures, they're quotes out of the Septuagint, which is why the wording may be slightly different sometimes than what we read. We'll read an Old Testament passage, then we'll read the quote in the New Testament. We'll say, well, those aren't the exact same words. Same meaning, but the words are slightly different. Why? Because most of those translations come from the Septuagint. Still the Hebrew Scriptures, but it's a Greek translation, just like we have our English translation of Greek and Hebrew. Are you with me? Okay, so this is all taken from the Septuagint. We see this; these quotes that Peter gives, the wording that Peter uses comes right out of the Septuagint. So we know that's the translation of the Hebrew Bible that Peter was using. And this phrase, drawing near to God, is direct as a Greek word from that Greek translation. Keep your finger here and go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. Chapter 9, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So the third book in the Older Testament. Coming to Him, proserkomai. We see this word three times, right here, I believe three times. Right here in Leviticus chapter 9. So watch this, get a sense of this. You there yet? It's only the third book, come on. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1. It came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull, for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering. And an ox and a ram for peace offerings and to sacrifice before the Lord. And a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation came near, prosercomai. They came near, they they drew near, the word means. They, They approached, and they stood before the Lord. Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Note that. You want the glory of the Lord to appear to you in your life? Draw near. Come to Him. You never experience the glory of the Lord in a life that keeps God at arm's length, that puts Him at a distance. Draw near to Him. You come to Him. You come before Him. Moses then said to Aaron in verse 7, Come near. There it is again. Prosercomai. Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people and then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord has commanded. And so in verse 8, Aaron came near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering which was for himself. Come near, come near, come near. Coming to Him, Peter says. Same word, that sense of drawing near before God. Now to the Hebrew mind then, it would indicate a coming near to the temple, a coming near to the place of sacrifice, a coming into the presence of God. Another place that the word is used, Psalm 34, verse 5, which says, They looked to Him and were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. Wait a minute. 
Where is it in that verse? Let me read to you the Septuagint translation. Psalm 34, verse 5, Draw near to Him and be enlightened, and your faces shall not by any means be ashamed. Same concept, same idea, but we hear that word, draw near. It reminds me of one of my single favorite verses out of all the Psalms. It's Psalm 73, 28, a Psalm of Asaph, where he writes, As for me... The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Feeling misaligned? Come to Him. Feeling a little off? Draw near. The nearness of God is your good. The nearness of God is always our good to live in and to be in His presence. Add to that what the Hebrew pastor wrote. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So draw near. Come to Christ. He is the living stone, the sound, sure, solid, head of the corner, the foundation. The living stone. Now again, we come near to the living stone, but I remind you, as I said before, this is a strange phrase. Living stone. It's an oxymoron, if you will. Like Phrases like, here's an oxymoron for you, act naturally. Well, if you're natural, then you're not acting, right? But if you're acting, it ain't natural. How do you act naturally? I don't know. Okay, so there's one. Here's another one for you. Government initiative. <laughs> That's a clear oxymoron. Airline food. Or how about this one? The living dead. You know zombies aren't a thing. And perhaps we just need to take a moment and clarify this, that the whole idea of zombie apocalypses only happen on Netflix. This is not a thing. In this generation, there are actually people in this generation who are concerned about the potential of a zombie apocalypse. I think you have got to be kidding me. That's just not how it works. There is no walking dead. If they're dead, they're not walking. But there is, there is the one who was dead and is alive. There is Jesus who said in Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And before Jesus, that would have seemed an oxymoron. But He's the one who died and lives forever. The first, by the way. Oh, there were other people who died and, and were raised from the dead, only to die again. Listen, if I die, just let me be dead. Okay? Just, just let's not do any bringing. Let, let Jesus bring me back. That's good. Because when Jesus brings someone back from the dead, they live forever. And Jesus is the first. He's the one who said, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jingle, jingle, jingle. He said in Revelation 2.8, I am the first and the last. Who was dead and has come to life? You know what that does for Christians? It makes us not fear death. He's been there. He's walked through that gate. He's got the keys. And He will let you out should you die before He comes. So, no fear. And remember, by the way, the rock in the wilderness. Speaking of a living stone. Remember what happened there in the wilderness and Moses, Moses struck the rock and water poured forth and, and Israel drank from it wonderfully, marvelously. I love the story. 
And you might think if you were among the Israelites there, when Moses struck that rock the first time, God said, strike the rock. Moses struck the rock. And the water poured out. You might think, is that a living stone? I mean, cause and effect. You hit something and something happens. It's having a response to the striking here, right? Stimulation and response. Is this stone alive? You Bible students know the rest of that story. That the second time that God told Moses, when the people were thirsty, oh, we're dying of thirst, we need some Evian, something, Lord. And the Lord says to Moses, hey, speak to the rock. Moses was angry with the people for grumbling again, so instead of speaking to the rock as he was commanded, he struck the rock the second time. God in His grace caused water to pour forth anyway, but told Moses, because you were unfaithful and you misrepresented me, you will not go into the promised land. Well, what's the big deal, God? I mean, striking the rock. He said strike the rock the first time. So he didn't speak to the rock the second time. So he struck it. So what? So it messed up a beautiful prophetic picture that the rock who is Christ was struck at Calvary. And now, followers of Jesus, you no longer strike the rock. You speak to the rock. And the water, the living water of the Spirit flows forth. He is the living stone, the one who is alive. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 that all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Which is really cool to recognize that even before Jesus walked in the first century, He was walking with the Israelites in the wilderness. The rock was Christ. The foundation followed was right there with them. But look at the contrasting three words that that Peter uses here in verse 4. Coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. The living stone has been rejected. The single greatest tragedy in the history of the world is the rejection of the living stone. Peter and John were standing there, those unschooled, uneducated men, and they schooled the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, sitting around there looking all smug, questioning them, how dare they speak in this name. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, Peter said, He is the stone which was rejected by you. The builders, which became the head of the corner. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. But you rejected Him. People are still rejecting the living stone, the foundation stone, the only hope. Just as the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus. But recognize though, mankind at times will reject this living stone. No, the living stone is choice and precious. The living stone is choice. Like Him or not. And I don't understand why anyone wouldn't like Jesus. Spend a little time with Him. If you don't know Jesus, spend some time with Him. Just take time and read one of the Gospels and put yourself among the apostles. among the Follow Him for a little bit. See how you feel about Him. See how He, how he presents Himself and, and what He's like. Listen to what He says. You can't do it. Mark my words. You cannot spend time with Jesus and not like Him. There's just something about Him. 
And He is choice. He is God's choice. Note that. God's choice, God's plan, God's provision. There is no other. He's the choice one, the choice stone, period. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The living stone is choice by God. And and secondly, the living stone is precious in the sight of God. And that word precious is the word that we use for precious stones. For rubies or emeralds or diamonds. That same word was used for precious stones in the first century. It's intimos. And it means something of highest value, of highest honor. He's precious, this living stone. Remember what God said? Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, dripping wet. The Spirit descends upon Him as a dove. And God speaks from the heavens and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A remarkable stamp of approval. And then in Matthew 17.5, they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has just been transfigured before, before Peter, James, and John, who are stunned by the sight. Moses is there. Elijah is there. They're talking with Jesus about His impending death. And as they're speaking, Peter, Peter blurts out, Oh Lord, it's good for us to be here. We should build three tabernacles. One for Moses, and one for Elijah, and of course one for you, Jesus. And the voice boomed out of the heavens, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The living stone, choice and precious. And finally, Peter would repeat that scene on the Mount of Transfiguration. In 2 Peter 1.17, he says, When he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Jesus by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He is precious in the sight of God. He's precious to us too. Jesus is. Christ the living stone, rejected by men, but is the choice and precious base of the church. The living stone, Peter likes that word living. He's already used it a couple of times. He's already told us that he's the living hope in chapter 1, verse 3. He's referred to the living word in chapter 1, verse 23. And now we draw near to the living stone and watch this, verse 5, you also as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Number two, the bayit. Jesus is the base, the foundation, on which now the temple is to be built. The bayit. You also are living stones. It's one of the coolest pictures in the Bible. That like Christ the living stone... He's the head of the corner. He's the cornerstone. He's the primary stone, the living stone. But we also become these living stones. Hey, without Jesus, you are as good as stone cold dead. There is no life. But Christ, the living stone, is in the construction business. And so Peter says we are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house, a bayit, a temple. We are being built together. A temple made of people. And this is a spot on translation. Because it's in the passive sense. You are being built. You're not building yourselves up. You're being built up. 
I find things like this so comforting because I tend to slide, maybe some of you do too, into the, into the sense of building myself. You know, my own bodybuilding. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make myself strong. I'm going to determine these things. And then when I fail, I think, there I go again. But see, what the Spirit is telling us is you are being built. You may not even know it. You are being slid into place in and among other living stones. But it's not what we're doing, it's what He's doing. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18, I will build My church. A phrase that rang out so loud and clear to me nearly 15 years ago when the bridge first began. Because I remember thinking, 18 people, Lord? 19 on a good day? Are you sure about this? I will build my church. And very early on, I was relieved of the stress and strain and worry of having to build a church. I didn't have to do it. I remember how many times I pray, Lord, this is not my problem. This is your problem. You started this thing. You want this to be. You you want this fellowship to be here. You're going to have to do this because I can't do this. I will build my church, he says. A spiritual house. Built up as a spiritual house, Peter uses this word house and he clearly intends it for temple. The word is oikos in the Greek, but it's another very Jewish use of a phrase or, or of a word. House is temple. Read through the Hebrew Scriptures. Constantly, the temple in Jerusalem is referred to as the Lord's house. The house of the Lord. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, he says, I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, he says. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. My house, the house of the Lord, the temple, the bayit of the living God, who is the living stone, who is the cornerstone of the spiritual temple that is now being built across these 2,000 years. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. The pastor said, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Turn back to Ephesians just for a moment. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And check this out. Ephesians chapter 2. Where you see such a close parallel between what Peter is describing in 1 Peter chapter 2 and now what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. Two letters coming out from two separate apostles in two separate places going to separate peoples, not comparing notes, but the same Spirit is speaking through both. And the Spirit says through Paul in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Note that these living stones are being fitted together by the Lord, not by you, which means you may not choose the stones that you are slipped in beside. 
That's not our choice. You know, I'm sitting there on a stone and I look over there. He's pretty cool. No, Lord. No, no. I am not going to sit by her. I prefer to be in a different fellowship. Can you move me to the other side of the building, please? The option is not yours or mine. He's the one doing the building. He's the one doing the fitting. And boy, can you imagine what would the church be like today if we didn't slip out of one place because we've been offended and, and go on over to another and then to another and then to another and then to another? You know, trying to find the church that's a good fit for me when the reality is I am being fitted by the Lord into His holy house. Yeah, but I don't like this church. These people are nice to me. Well, maybe you're supposed to be nice. Well, I'm uncomfortable here. Well, maybe that's because you're being fitted out as part of a spiritual house and not a house of flesh. I just say that to say maybe the place that we're at is uncomfortable. Maybe the people we're surrounded by, oh, not you all, but second service. Maybe the people (laughs) we're surrounded by are not the people we would choose to be with. And I have been guilty of this. Someone leaves the church and I go, oh, thank God. I mean, Lord, go with them. Bless them. Fill them. Sometimes our discomfort is part of the fitting process. It's part of sliding into place. And I want to go this way, but Jesus the cornerstone is saying, no, align yourself with me. Align yourself with me. I know it's a little uncomfortable, but we're going to get there. I am building you up as a living stone for a holy house. By the way, note this in Ephesians where Paul is talking. Did you notice where this building process is taking place? Look at the first two words of Ephesians 2 verse 21. In whom? In whom? The building process is not taking place in Jerusalem. It's not taking place on North Whidbey Island. The building process is taking place in Christ Jesus. And that's different than any other faith or religious following in history. And you don't hear people say that they are in Buddha. You don't hear someone say, I am in Confucius. They might say, I'm of Confucius, or I'm of Muhammad. They never say, I am in Allah. You wouldn't dare say, I'm in Allah. Hey, I wouldn't dare say, I am in Jesus, except Jesus said, you are in me. You are built in me. In my presence. In my being. And the New Testament declares this over and over and over. And it is a singular, unique dynamic for the church. That His people are being built up together in Christ. In Him. John 17.21, Jesus laid it out. He said that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We're being built together by Him, in Him, for Him, through Him. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. So get in Him. Because that's where the building's happening. That's where the stones come alive. 1 Peter 5.14 Peace to all you, he says, who are in Christ. So we are being built and, and fitted together in Christ, this bait, this holy temple, to do what? 
back in 1 Peter 2, continuing in verse 5, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's the first reminder, by the way, that we are talking about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Because sacrifice is part of the deal. That's why we're being built into this spiritual house. That we might offer up spiritual sacrifices. Paul says in Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. Your spiritual service of worship. I'm offering a sacrifice here. Again, Peter says, spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul says your spiritual service of worship. So what is the sacrifice that we're called to? Does it mean that uh, I've got to sacrifice money or time or pleasure or, or even my life? Do I have to be a David living stone? Can I just be a living stone? Do I have to go out in, in missions and, and do that? Do I, do I have to? And, and we're asking the wrong question. For some, yes. For some, me, it means sacrificing any financial income. For others, it means sacrificing time and pleasure, giving up of your life. For some, but listen, it's not just an attitude of asceticism that he's calling us to. He's not saying that to be a living stone, you've got to be a nun in a nunnery or a monk in a monastery and you can't talk to each other. You've got you to give yourself to hardship. You've got to flail yourself on the back. Make life difficult. And sometimes you might think, well, I wouldn't do that. A lot of Christians are thinking, well, if it's not hard, maybe I'm not following Jesus. Hey, I'll tell you what, there have been times in my life when following Jesus was the absolute easiest thing I could do. The hard was when I tried to misalign myself and go my own way. So don't be confused. It's not like I've got to be struggling and hurting and in angst to really be a follower of Jesus Christ. No. No. Your spiritual sacrifice is of worship. First and foremost. Worship. Think about it. What did the priests offer in the temple, which was a shadowy representation of this living temple that's being built up right now in Christ Jesus? What did they do? How did they worship? They offered bodies and blood of animals. Right? What did those blood sacrifices represent? Even back when we were reading Leviticus 9, and Moses was telling Aaron, bring all the animals forward, slaughter them. And, and we think from our Western perspective, that's kind of gross. Think about on, on Passover. They said that the blood ran ankle deep in the temple. I mean, that's, that's vile and, and it's, it's brutal and it's, it's graphic. Why, Lord? To be a strong representation of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And this comes back to our sense of worship. Listen, the only way to present your body as a living sacrifice, to, as Peter says, offer up spiritual sacrifices in this living house that are acceptable to God, the only way to do it, as Peter says, is through Jesus Christ. If I'm going to sacrifice to God, I've got to sacrifice through Jesus. So again, what does that mean? It's not nose to the grindstone. Fingers to the bone, self-sacrifice. That will never be good enough. 
You can sign up for every possible ministry going on in the Bridge Fellowship and it's not enough. It will never be enough because you're not doing it to prove yourself. No, these sacrifices that are acceptable to God come through Jesus Christ. Okay, so then what are Paul and Peter talking about? Again, we turn to the Hebrew pastor to clarify. Hebrews 13.15 that says, Through Him, that is Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Our best sacrifice, and I'm not saying we can't or shouldn't sacrifice other things, but our best sacrifice through Jesus Christ is worship. It's praise, it's thanksgiving. We are being built into a spiritual house where worship takes place. And as such, our spiritual service in this house is a number one most important sacrifice you can offer is worship to the living God. That is the most important thing that happens here on a Sunday morning. It is the most important thing that takes place here on a Wednesday night. It is not the teaching. It is the worship. It is not that we're here for us. It is that we are here for Him. We become living stones crying out in worship. Remember what Jesus said? If these remain silent, the stones will cry out. But He has made us living stones so that we would cry out. Listen, in a railing taunt against Babylon, God said the following, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11, Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. God's saying, Babylon, even your houses know what you're doing. I read that verse and I thought, hmm, If these walls could speak, what would they say? What would these steel girders and wood framing, what would this drywall say of our service of worship? How would we be described when we gather here corporately to worship God? Well, I worship Jesus on my own. I know you do, and that's great, and you should. Because we often talk about that worship is a lifestyle. Worship is an attitude. Worship should be in the car driving down the road or in the shower when you're singing your lungs out and no one really wants to hear. It should be wherever you are, whenever you are, thanksgiving to God, praise to God. But listen, there is something incredibly important and valuable about corporate worship. Because this is the time when we gather our hearts together and we say we will do nothing but praise Jesus. What do these walls say about our praise? Let us elevate the value of worship in this place. Let's make it more important. Elevating it above the teaching of the Word, which is vital and important. I get it. I know. I agree. But the worship, the worship. How would it be? What would it say to a visitor walking in these doors if before the first note of worship we were all here in our seats anticipating the worship of God. Oh, you're talking about my lateness, Rick. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I speak as one who knows. I, I told you all, I, I got into ministry in the first place just so I could get myself to church. <laughs> so I had to be there. 
But I, I encourage you, when we wake on a Sunday morning, when we're getting to the end of the day on a Wednesday, when we're prepared to head to our small group, wherever corporate worship is happening, elevate it. Elevate it. It is more important than the coffee. It is more important than the fellowship. I love the fellowship, but that's not why we're here first and foremost. It's part of it. But the worship of the living God. When I was leading worship, prior to Rachel coming on, there were times where we'd hit the first note and there'd be only a few people in here and I'd be like, come on folks, I worked hard on this set list. (laughs) Completely the wrong mentality, you know? And then then Rachel started leading and I find myself wandering in two or three songs into the set. She stares me down. I tell her, hey, I was here for first service. I've already worshipped once. (laughs) The point is simply this. It's not to make anybody feel bad for ever being late. Sometimes I would rather you were here a half an hour in than not here at all. But that's not the point. The point is the worship of the living God. The point is what our hearts say to Him when we trail in and, and, and we don't focus on Him until two, three songs into it. Then we, then we start to get with it. But He's been here all along longing to hear the praise of His saints. And that is our spiritual worship. And if it needs to be a sacrifice for all of us, then, then so be it. But note this in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Now, Peter is going to support Everything he's been saying. He's been basically giving the sermon up to this point. Now he's going to go back and give the supporting verses straight out of the Older Testament. He gives three quotes revealing the prophetic design plans of God from long ago. Number three, the blueprints. We've talked about the base, the foundation, Jesus. The bayit, the temple of living stones now being built up in and upon the living stone of Christ. And now the blueprints, verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious corner stone. That's where Peter gets the words, choice and precious. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Peter pulls this right out of the prophet Isaiah. Paul takes the exact same quote and quotes it in Romans 9.33 and in Romans 10, verse 11. Peter now lays into this quote as as well, saying, Note this, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. In the Hebrew, because remember, this is the Septuagint translation, it's the Greek translation, he will not be disappointed. The Hebrew says, He who believes will not be disturbed. Same general meaning, same concept, same idea. You're not going to be disappointed because the foundation is sure and the building is strong. You're not going to be disturbed because no earthquake is going to shake you loose. We are receiving, the Hebrew writer says, a kingdom which cannot be shaken. You won't be disappointed. You won't be disturbed. The blueprint said this ahead of time. This is going to be so good that nobody's going to find disappointment in it. And these blueprints, these three passages among many, these three reveal from 700 to 1,000 years ahead of the building a methodical building process that will not rush to disappoint, but rest 
on the living stone. So the blueprints are sound and they're good. And we've looked over the years at so much Bible prophecy. Think of it that way. Bible prophecy is blueprints for what is being built. For what will be built. For what is going to stand, not just at the time of building, but on into eternity. The blueprints. But these blueprints not only include plans for the choice and precious cornerstone and the spiritual house, they also reveal plans for those who reject the living stone. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, he quotes Psalm 118 verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the head of the corner. Our our Bibles say the very cornerstone, but the phrase again is the head of the corner. It's a phrase that meant the cornerstone. And Peter now vividly is going to describe the appointment of this doom that he speaks about in the next verse, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, for they stumble because they're disobedient to the Word, and to this doom, which by the way is added in, they were also appointed. Listen, it's to this stumbling they were appointed. Psalm 118.22 is in verse 7 and then quoted in verse 8, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Peter is going to get even more vivid with this appointment of doom, appointment of stumbling, those marked out ahead of time for this condemnation. He's going to talk about that in Second Peter chapter 2. So we'll come back to that concept. But listen quickly to the context here of what's being said in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 8 Isaiah 8 verse 14 Then he shall become a sanctuary a temple but to and note that's so interesting he shall become a temple So Isaiah right there is is speaking to this issue of Christ, the cornerstone of this living temple God would build. He shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That is exactly what has happened. That began 2,000 years ago with the rejection of Messiah, the stumbling of Israel. The stumbling of the Jewish people, which we have watched for 2,000 years, play out before our very eyes. And then he says, and many, speaking not just of Israel, but now of the world, many will stumble over them. And they will fall and be broken, and they will even be snared and be caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Jesus refers back to that exact passage, Isaiah 8 verse 14, when Jesus says in Luke 20 verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. People have long tried to figure out what Jesus was saying. The church today loves to talk about our brokenness. Well, I fell on the stone and I ended up broken. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is talking about two people in Luke 20, verse 18. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, speaks of Israel. Falling on the cornerstone, falling on Messiah and was broken. Israel, the nation, was broken. And as only recently as we talked about been reestablished and is being drawn back dry bones right now in the wilderness that will be brought to life by the living stone 
Israel broken. But listen, on whomever this stone falls, it will scatter him like dust. Israel is broken. The pieces can and will be regathered. But those whom the stone falls upon are the nations of the world. We see this played out in a vision of Daniel chapter 2. Read it on your own time. But the nations will be scattered like dust. Why? Because of the rejection of the choice and precious cornerstone. And the blueprint said it would happen. The blueprints described it long ahead of time. Back with Peter. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. And while the word doom is not there, it is indicated. You're going to stumble over the stone and you're appointed to this. Well, I don't like that. Are you one of those, you read the scriptures and there are certain things you say, that doesn't fit with my theology. Next verse. <laughs> we'll pause for a moment. It sounds like, some might say, to this doom they were appointed, like they don't have a choice, like Judas. Oh, poor Judas. Born and raised to betray Jesus. He didn't have a choice. That's just not fair. He was created to play a part and was then destroyed. Wow, that's not fair. You know, if you want to think about fairness, where Judas is concerned... Jesus spent three years discipling him in order to save him. Judas made the choice. God made sure he was as close to Messiah as possible in hopes that he would not make the choice that God knew he was going to make. But still gave him every opportunity to be saved. And that is the same as it is for anybody, even those who you might say, well, they're, but they're, they're appointed to this doom. Listen, the doom is appointed to those who are disobedient to the Word. That is the outcome. That is the blueprint. If you deny the Word, if you reject the living stone, you will be a dead stone. That's up to you. But the blueprints declare this is what will happen. There is no way around the living Word. you got to go through the living Word, Jesus Christ. But try to avoid it or ignore it or worse, reject it then you have become appointed, marked out for condemnation. Because you reject the living stone. But, but, but listen, that's, that's not the main point of this. See, what Peter is doing here is drawing a contrast with the, the absolute certainty of this stone laid in Zion that all this established truth, hey, it, it was detailed in the blueprints. It was spoken of ahead of time. And just as the redemption of Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, so was the condemnation of those who would refuse Him. It's simple. Accept the cornerstone or reject the cornerstone. That is the choice of life. I've said this over and over. We're in this life to make one choice. Just one. And that choice will affect everything. Will change everything for us. But one choice. I am so thrilled when someone in their 90s gives their life to Jesus. Others might say, well, they got to live sinfully for 90 years. and they, No, it doesn't matter. They gave their life to Jesus. That's what matters. Oh, so I can live for... Well, no, because you may die before you give your life to Jesus. Don't mess around. If you know who Jesus is, choose Him now. And know this, that when you choose the choice and precious cornerstone, you're solid. 
and you are made alive. Peter is is not writing here to threaten non-believers. He is writing to believers who were soon to be threatened. And as with the first half of chapter 1, Peter is giving foundation, reminding these believers on which they, what, what it is that they truly stand upon. And of course the backdrop that we're coming to, not this morning, but coming to, and that is sharing the sufferings of Christ. So, so the closer we move to the living stone, the more we're going to re- share in the rejection of the living stone. Do you get that? If I'm standing right by Jesus and He's being rejected, guess what? I'm going to be rejected. That's part of the suffering that I share with Him. The more I draw near to Him, the more I become one of those who is rejected by a world that rejects the living stone and the living stones. Number four, final one, the building blocks. This shared rejection that Peter refers to and hints at, this shared rejection is absolutely wonderfully overwhelmed by the shared reality. And that is that He is the living stone and you also as living stones. Once dead, are now alive. Once lost, now born again. We parallel the original model of Israel. Watch this, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who calls you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you've been watching my fingers count all this up, these are all passages straight out of the Hebrew Scriptures. Every phrase in these two verses... Peter is drawing out of the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, you're a chosen race. Isaiah 43, verse 20. I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen race. And that word race is, again, out of the Septuagint. Isaiah 61, verse 6. Hey, you're a holy priesthood. God said, you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You're a holy nation. Exodus 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are God's own possession. Exodus 19, verse 5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. You are a people. You weren't a people. But now you are a people, Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. We had not received mercy. But Peter says, now you have received mercy. Hosea chapter 2 verse 23. God says, I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are our God. Now, as I said earlier, Peter is not replacing Israel. But what he is showing us here is that we now share into and become part of, partakers of, all of the blessings and promises by and in that child of Israel, Jesus Christ. Son of man, son of God, a Jew himself, we now have been grafted in. We are the building blocks of the new temple. 
He's the living stone. We're the living stones being built together. A temple, by the way, that is far superior to any temple in the Older Testament because those temples were built of dead stones. Stones that could be torn down. Stones that could be thrown from the top of the Temple Mount. As Peter and the boys were coming out from the Mount, they looked up and they said, Hey, Jesus, look at this awesome structure. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Matthew 24, verse 2, not one stone will remain upon another. Not one. But those temples could be torn down. This temple on the living stone, built of living stones, is eternal. It is unshakable. Christ the cornerstone, choice and precious to God. Again, precious to us too. He's the foundation. Jesus gives the stability. He sets the angles. He gives your life and my life symmetry and meaning. And He doesn't ever tear down. No, Jesus Christ builds up. And yeah, we're going to share in His sufferings. But eternally... We share in all the blessings and promises of God. So I think it's time that we bring back the phrase when we see each other in the fellowship or show up in each other's homes or if we happen to run into each other in town to come up to one another, stick out our hands, smile and say, Mr. Livingstone, I presume? (laughs) Miss Livingstone, I presume? In the journal of David Livingstone, he wrote... I place no value on anything I have or may possess, except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. If anything will advance the interests of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept, only as by giving or keeping it, I shall promote the glory of Him to whom I owe all my hopes in time and eternity. Come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. If you've never given your life to Him, if you are not a Christian today, come to Jesus and know what it means to be made alive, to be born again. And for so many of us, I don't know what your week has been like, I never know, but Jesus knows. I know many have struggled, I know many are suffering. Come to Jesus. If there's anything I can say, draw near to Him and keep drawing near to Him until the day that He calls us out of here. Come to Him and you will find your security.